Atamari here, welcome to First Up, it's Ratu, Tuesday the 29th of November, Kornathan Rarere Aho coming up national, accuses the government of being soft on crime, but we remind Nicola Willis that they were accused of the same thing following the 2014 stabbing death of another Auckland dairy worker. Speaking of dairies, dairy owners fear they will have to take matters into their own hands despite the government's announcement of a fog cannon subsidy scheme and fog cannons themselves. How do they work? How much do they cost? We speak with an expert. A robber comes in, all they have in mind is get what they want and even if they have to bash somebody or, or worse, but you imagine they come in and scream what they want and then all of a sudden they can't see a thing. Good morning, everybody. I said to my best Aunt Daisy. Uh, welcome to First Up. Uh, I'm Nathan Rarere. We will be going to Ghana later with an emergency cross to our friend Nabil, uh, who is, will be very excited that Ghana uh, have uh, done a, a well done a big upset, as you would have just heard, in the sports news. Also, a lot of fog cannon stuff this morning as well. Uh, and we will go to the UK soon. But we begin in China today, where protests against the country's strict COVID lockdown policy continue to grow. In the past few hours, protests have taken place in Shanghai, Wuhan and in Beijing. The BBC's Stephen MacDonald has this report. The Chinese capital became the latest city with a demonstration calling for an end to the country's COVID restrictions. The symbol of this movement has become white sheets of paper, with protesters holding them up to represent the way in which people are silenced here by official censorship. They're chanting, saying that strict lockdowns and compulsory testing should stop. But a dissatisfaction with the government's handling of this crisis is also spilling over into calls for press freedom and democracy. In the southwestern city of Chengdu, protesters blamed China's leader Xi Jinping personally. They criticised his lifetime leadership entitlement and said their country doesn't need an emperor. This followed earlier calls in Shanghai for Xi Jinping to step down and for the Communist Party to give up power. At the site where protesters clashed with police, barriers have gone up to stop crowds gathering again. Waves of anger have spread across China following an apartment block fire in Xinjiang last week, which killed 10 residents. People have blamed COVID restrictions for hampering the access of firefighters and blocking escape routes. China's foreign ministry spokesman Jali Jian said foreign forces with ulterior motives had linked the fire to zero COVID measures. But these protests have unleashed discontent which has been not very far below the surface. A chant can easily become a speech. This man said people want dignity and the rule of law and added that he didn't want China's children to go on living in this era of horror. One of the problems in China is that nobody knows when zero COVID will end. If the government has a plan, it's not told people what it is. And so the belief that this could go on forever is causing a lot of consternation amongst the general public. Zero COVID in China means trying to return each outbreak to zero infections using strict stay-at-home orders, travel bans and mass testing. Entire cities are sometimes officially locked down or effectively closed with businesses shut. Yet even with these strict measures, 
COVID-19 continues to spread. The country posted record new case numbers over the past five days in a row. That was Stephen McDonnell reporting from Beijing. It is eight past five. We go to the UK now where a, a big tally show has wrapped up. Henry Riley is with us in London. Kia ora, Henry. Hello, Nathan. Good to be with you. Hey, one of the, the biggest uh, post-Boris things is the appearance of the former health secretary, uh, Matt Hancock, uh, in the reality show, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. I understand it's just ended. What happened? Did he escape? Yeah, he's out. He's still in Australia, but he managed to escape the jungle. He came in third place, third out of a possible 12, which is seriously impressive. So politicians have been appearing on that show um, since God was a boy. They've been appearing on it for years. We've had former health ministers, Edwina Curry. We've had a, another man called Lembert Opik, who was famous for going out with a cheeky girl, but he was also... Uh, He was also a politician as well. And Matt Hancock, everyone sort of expected him to go out first or second or to be one of the first to be eliminated. And, you know, considering some of the political controversy around him as well, as you mentioned, he was the health secretary during the pandemic. And so there's a lot of anger about some of the decisions that were made. He was also found to breach COVID rules because he cheated on his wife. And he uh, he was uh, there was a picture of him in one of the government buildings where he was caught uh, snogging his now girlfriend and um, he has somehow redeemed himself I mean don't get me wrong not everyone's sort of parading on the streets going we want Matt Hancock as Prime Minister they're not doing that but there is a sense that among some regular folk if I could put it like that because some people have um, in some ways rightly so preconceived ideas and very strong views about Matt Hancock but there are, there is a certainly a group of people that seem to have come round to the idea of him as a as a sort of person and so yeah he said he was looking for redemption and he has got that to some extent finishing third in a reality tv show uh, voted by the public it's always interesting this uh, we have mps here that have stepped up to do that and people go why would they do this it's bad for their credibility no it warms them to members of the public they yeah. wouldn't normally know uh, also katrina would like an entire show of owen warner just uh, being on tv i think should we <laughs> yeah she's got a fan there i'll tell you um and he should be the next thor we think too look let's cross to another <laughs> one this there's, there's actually been an arrest here in this investigation into the stabbing deaths of two teens can you tell us who's being charged yeah an extremely worrying case that's uh, happened uh, on saturday actually but we're only sort of learning about it now a 16 year old boy has been arrested as you say he's been arrested on suspicion of murder this comes after two teenagers being fatally stabbed just a mile apart in southeast london now we heard about these two incidents separately but police then confirmed that they thought there was some sort of link it appears now that there may be a link um and so this this all happened we have sadly uh, the names it was kian Solanke and charlie bartolo who were the two 16 year old boys who were pronounced dead and uh, it's an extremely shocking case i mean the, the local MP has said that she doesn't want to be having to comment on the death of another young person. 16 is absolutely no time to die. And it's an extremely horrific case that has uh, been very high up the news agenda in the UK today. Yeah, it's very, very sad. Um, There will be, I imagine, some sort of coverage of a, a game of football that you may have heard about. England versus Wales at the World Cup tomorrow. England's going right. You wouldn't be worried by Wales, would you? 
Um, well, you never know with England, really. Right, I mean, okay. it's cl- classic. We beat Iran 6-2 on the first day of the tournament and everyone was going, this is amazing. We are officially going to win the World Cup. And then we had a disappointing result against the US. We drew near and there when everyone was going, this is the worst England team of all time. We might as well drop out. I mean, you get these sort of two extremes in England <laughs> constantly. Um, it's it's never, it's always sort of black and white. There's never nuance. But Wales have had a, a, a terrible start. I mean, they, they uh, were quite fortunate in that they rescued a draw against the US. US, which was seen as a very impressive result. In fact, they nearly went on to win the game, but they were so poor against Iran. They conceded two injury time goals and ended up losing 2-0 to Iran. And so they haven't really got anything to play for. It's extremely unlikely that they would qualify. But nevertheless, as you say, Nathan, it's it's a derby. It's a UK derby, Wells versus England. And uh, I'll certainly be tuning into my TV with a couple of pints tomorrow evening. Excellent. Now, the, the balls they're playing with now are the, are the very lightweight, synthetic ones. But I, I see they're the Scottish Football Association. They're, they're, they're banning hitting the ball in training the day before and the day after matches. So, so what's happened here with people? Because there's always the, oh, nope, nothing wrong with that in my day. Yeah, and it's it's a sort of progressive um, campaign this has been. It came into the headlines last year because the Scottish Football Association, and indeed this is in Scotland, they do seem to be a lot more uh, in touch, as it were, with the, with the sort of injuries that can happen with regards to heading a football. They ruled last year that you couldn't head the ball in training for the under-12 age group. And so they were starting at a very early age to try and almost phase out some of the damage that can be done. Um, as you can imagine, there was some backlash, some people saying, well, this is crazy because, you know, in 10 years' time, when when some of these people are professional footballers, they're not going to be able to head a ball. But now we learn that the Scottish Football Association is going to ban heading the day before and the day after matches. So the hope is that it would limit the, uh, you know, impacts that you would have. This has come after new guidance from the University of Glasgow that shows that former footballers were three and a half times more likely to die from brain diseases. So it's an extremely uh, concerning correlation. It does seem to be a connection between the two, as you would expect. And so Scotland, uh, and in particular their football association, taking a very proactive approach to try and phase out heading or at least limit it as much as possible. Yeah, Henry, thank you very much for your time. Enjoy the football tomorrow. There he is, Henry Riley, out of the UK. It is a quarter past five. You're listening to First Up here on RNZ National. This one here is always an interesting case too. To South, Af- uh, South, South Australia, I should say, uh, where the state is the latest there to ban mobile phones in schools. Now, this comes after a series of fights were filmed in playgrounds and then posted to social media. Mobile phones are already banned across the state of Victoria, Tasmania and Western Australia, but as the ABC's Angus Randall reports, experts still don't know what impact the bans will have on students. Nathan Reynolds is grateful his teenage daughter has so far avoided an obsession with her phone. She hounded us for a phone for a long period of time and I said she had to wait until she was a teenager and then uh, since she turned 13 she's got a phone but she doesn't use it much so... Her phone's at home most days and doesn't even take it to school. He's the president of the Tasmanian Association of State School Organisations. The state brought in a phone ban two years ago alongside Victoria and Western Australia. Now South Australia and the Northern Territory are following suit. With our school, you take your phone to school in the morning, it has to be locked in the locker. If a teacher sees you with your phone, you get one warning to put it in your locker. If you don't do it then, then the next one is you'll have to take your phone to the office and leave it at the office for the day and collect it at the end of the day. And if you refuse to do that, then the parents will be called. In South Australia, Education Minister Blair Boyer believes students will back the change. This 
shouldn't be mistaken for being just something which is being pushed by people in authority or adults. There are a lot of students out there who acknowledge the effect, the negative effect that the phones are having. The state was shaken earlier this year when multiple videos emerged of brawls on school grounds. Fights had been filmed in schools across the state, including Golden Grove in Adelaide's northeast, Wyala and Port Augusta. Blair Boyer says phones were used to bring these incidents to light, but they can also encourage acts of violence. Yes, there are cases where have, having that footage means it's easier for the school and SAPOL to take action. But I have to say that the more conversations I've had, the more schools I've visited and principals and even parents I've spoken to, the more convinced I am that in a lot of cases, phones are actually the root cause of some of the violence that we're seeing. You know, I'm told constantly by probably principals in the most part that often the bystanders who are standing around egging on the assailant, for lack of a better word, are really doing so because they want that footage to share on social media. But there are questions over whether a mobile phone ban can solve the root cause of violence and bullying in schools. Professor Marilyn Campbell is from the Queensland University of Technology. It's not the technology that's causing the problems, but because we haven't grown up with that technology, then people think it's an easy solution. She believes bans are a political decision because the science on the impact of phones in schools isn't yet in. No studies have actually been released. So I think it's a real shame that a politician is making a statewide ban with no consideration of particular schools. Tasmanian parent Nathan Reynolds can only speak to his experience and he says some students were unhappy they could no longer film TikTok dances at lunchtime. But for him, the bans have been a move in the right direction. It was a hard one to police from the start because so many children want their phones on them. But as the primary school kids come through now and they know what that expectation is at school, should make things a bit smoother as well, I'd imagine. South Australia and the Northern Territory will launch their phone bans next year. That's the ABC's Angus Randall reporting. Eighteen and a half past five here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Coming up, we go to Nelson soon and we find out some drama involving the library there. And also, a fog cannon provider explains to us all how they work and how much they cost. Time to check in with the local democracy reporting program now. And this morning we are in Nelson with Max Freethy. Max has been looking into the saga of the Elmer Turner Library. Yeah, so the Alma Turner Library is Nelson's main library, and for a while it's been on the books for Nelson to build a new library. Um, the cost was slated at $44 million, adjusted for inflation, that's now looking to be $46 million. But our new mayor, Nick Smith, he believes that's entirely too much money to be spending on a new library. So that idea has been put on hold, partly justified by the incredible eye-watering now $40 to $60 million that needs to be spent on flood recovery after the August weather event. Ah, of course. Okay, yeah, so 40 to $60 million. Gosh, that's a huge mm. amount uh, of, of money yes. though, when you said there for the library. I wasn't quite um, uh, thinking of that one there. I mean, is, is the library, is it is it operating at the moment? Yeah, so it's, it's not currently open. It was closed in uh, June, I believe, of this year because its ceiling tiles were found to be much heavier than expected, about 11 kilograms, some of them. 
And so that was deemed to be an earthquake risk and the council closed the library just in the past uh, week or so, actually, council have approved strengthening work uh, so the building can be reopened again, but that won't be until uh, about July next year. Okay, so I imagine that strengthening work on a, on a roof is a bit cheaper than you know building another one from $40 million upright. <laughs> yes. Do they, do they have an idea of how much that might be or how much is there being yeah. any allocated? Yeah, the, the, the amount that council approved was $1.4 million, um, which is uh, definitely cheaper than $44 million. But the Elmenturner Library, it wasn't, wasn't purpose-built, a library. It was a car showroom beforehand, I think. Uh-huh. So, you know, there are some arguments that it's not purpose-built to be a library. And that, I suppose, is where the push for the new facility came from. Because uh, Blenheim, for example, I believe recently put in a new library, um, about half the population of Nelson for about 20, 25 million, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, perhaps 44 million for a new library for Nelson isn't outrageous. But um, yeah, given the cost that Nelson is facing. Some definitely think it's not the best option. Okay, so then what is happening with funding now as far as that big total goes? Mayor Nick Smith, in the first meeting of council with Australian, he put to councillors that they pause any more spending on this new project while they sort of reassess he's made flood recovery as number one priority. Uh, and council sort of um, you know, agreed that that's a good idea, especially with you know, the rising cost of living, the rate of inflation, the price of debt these days. So they'll revisit the library when they, I think it was, uh, look at the 2023-2024 annual plan. They'll revisit the project then, but it's been uh, put on pause for for now. So what do you do if you're in Nelson and you want a library, Brooke? They've established a wee pop-up library in the back of the currently closed Alma Turner, so you can get a, a few books. Okay. But we've also got a library um, in Stoke, one of the sort of suburbs of Nelson, and in um, Tahunanui, another suburb. So there are options, but obviously a library is a massive community facility um, and people are, are missing it. That's Nelson's LDR reporter, Max Freethy. Like sands through the hourglass, so are the days of our lives. This is the day of our life. We call the 29th of November. Happy birthday. Happy 50th birthday to you, Brian Baumgartner. You're going who? If you've ever seen The Office, The American Office, that's Kevin. The lovable Kevin. Nobody hated Kevin. He was lovely. Also born on this day, Joel Cohen. is uh, He's 68 years old. Of course, Joel and Ethan Cohen, an incredible uh, producing, directing uh, team of brothers. Uh, these are the movies that he has directed, and I think it's the Nathan Hall of Fame. Here I go. Uh, the Big Lebowski, The Hudsucker Proxy, Fargo, Raising Arizona, Burn After Reading, just amongst uh, the movies that Joel Cohen has directed. They're quite good. Paul Simon turns 82 years old uh, today. If we're having a look at happenings, on this day in 1893, by becoming the mayor of Onehunga, Elizabeth Yates became the first woman in the British Empire to be elected mayor. Let's go New Zealand. This day in 1899, FC Barcelona was founded, went on to be quite a popular football club. The very first Holden was produced in Australia in this day in 1948, of course General Motors there, and the last uh, vehicle, which was a bright red 2017 Holden VF, um, that was the one that rolled off, of course, in 2017, so it was sad to see that manufacturing uh, go away from there. On this day in 1972, co-founder of Atari, Nolan Bushnell, released Pong. 
the first commercially successful video game um, in a tavern there in Sunnyvale in California. And if you don't remember, it was the one with the two white <laughs> two white stripes that went up and down on the side in a little square, which was kind of like a tennis ball went pong, 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 and that was it. So well, there you are. Those are the happenings on this day of our life. We call the 29th of November. And Anzaki is with me from the business team. Kia ora, sir. How are you? Very well, thank you. A couple of interesting things we can talk about today. Let's go the, um, uh, obviously, you know, the property market tends to thunder in and uh, dominate news of things. But tell us this, depositors are set to benefit from these higher interest rates. Yeah, well, with interest rates uh, on the rise, uh, as you say, the property market is being, you know, forecast to continue its downward spiral for another year, uh, with banks passing on higher interest costs on to borrowers. So, uh, just to recap, uh, you know, we had the Reserve Bank hike the official cash rate last week, and the real surprise wasn't actually the rise itself on the day, which was seventy-five basis points, uh, taking it to four point two five percent. But it was a projection from the central bank for the rise to 5.5% by the middle of next year. No one really saw that coming. So CoreLogic, the property research company, say term depositors are in line to benefit from uh, higher rates, especially as the Reserve Bank's funding for lending program ends next week. Now, that program uh, allows eligible banks to borrow directly from the central bank at the same rate of the official cash rate for the past two years, which has been at historically uh, low levels over the past couple of years, especially at the beginning of the uh, pandemic. So CoreLogic say uh, with the program due to end, uh, banks may need to increase their margin uh, or find other funding to cover the fall uh, in that cheap source of liquidity. And he says that plays into the hands of term depositors. Now, banks will need to pay more interest on deposits and wholesale funds, uh, which will be passed on to mortgaged homeowners and other borrowers. So good times for uh, depositors, not so good for borrowers. Okay, and um, the uh, digital games industry. Now, I know there was a bit of worry about how much backing they had uh, previously, but um, the what recorded record annual growth, that's going to be good. Yeah, uh, the digital gaming industry is doing really well at the moment. The Game Developers Association, which is like the industry body here in New Zealand, uh, they estimate the industry's revenue grew nearly 50% to a record $407 million. Uh, But maintaining that growth is becoming uh, a challenge uh, with quite a few of our biggest gaming studios uh, looking to take advantage of tax breaks in Australia. Uh, Now, the association believes the industry's rate of growth means it'll be a billion-dollar industry by by 2026, and they attract really highly skilled workers, a high-paying industry, Uh, but they say the Australians are actively courting New Zealand companies, offering incentives to create jobs in Australia rather than uh, here in New Zealand. Uh, those pesky Aussies, the initiatives uh, across the ditch include uh, a 30% tax offset, uh, which could be combined with a 10 to 15% rebate in many states. So 
Uh, and we've had one of New Zealand's biggest game studios, Wellington-based uh, A44 Games. They're already opening an Australian headquarters in Melbourne. So they're really pushing for uh, some kind of big incentive here in New Zealand to keep those jobs from going across to Australia. Okay, thank you very much. You can hear more from the business team on Morning Report at 10.27. To your money markets now, the New Zealand dollar is worth 62.02 US cents, 92.71 Australian cents, 59.59 Euro cents, 51.53 British pence, 4.48 yuan and 86.13 Japanese yen. But none of that matters now, especially not to the people of Ghana, uh, because at the Football World Cup there's been... uh, uh, would it be an upset? I'm not quite sure if it's seen as that. I think South Korea is very good. But Ghana have beaten South Korea this morning 3-2. And when we thought about that, we thought, I bet you that our friend Nabil Ahmed, who we speak to from Ghana, is very happy about this. Morena, Nabil, how happy are you after Marina, Ghana beats, yeah, beat South Korea? Extremely happy, Nathan, because um, going into the game, there was a lot of, anxiety because the coach had said it was going to be a tough match against South Korea and then he would be hoping for at least a draw. Uh, So we beat South Korea 3-2. It's a lot of excitement. We are really happy. Uh, I got to watch the match at a viewing place uh, by the uh, state broadcaster JTV. So there were a packed crowd over there. A giant screen was on display. People were just drumming and singing, rooting for the Ghanaian team here in Accra, whereas the whole action is happening in Qatar. But then when uh, you, you you see the kind of I mean atmosphere at the viewing center, it was so much like you were even in the stadium watching the football live. So people were very excited when the first half we scored 2-0. And then coming back into the second half, then things started getting tough for the Ghanaian side. And then uh, South Korea actually um, equalized uh, 2-2. And then we had our third goal. And we're just hoping and praying that would maintain that score to the end of the match. (laughs) And indeed, that's what happened. And people were very happy. So, Nabil, when you were talking about these outdoor viewing areas, that's always great. About how many people were there, do you think? Oh, well, you know, um, here in Ghana, the time was 13G, so afternoon, so it was around uh, lunchtime. People could not run away from their workplaces to come to their uh, viewing centre. But then there were a couple of others who were able to make it. So be like a little about hundreds, yeah, in the, in the hundreds where they gathered just to view the match. And, you know, the euphoria when you are watching the match with a lot of people is different from you locked up in your own room and then watching it alone. So it's been a lot of excitement at the viewing centre. So I think now that actually puts Ghana in a pretty good position to go through to the, the next round. Yeah, well, what's what's the state of play there for, for Ghana? For now, for now, um, the pundits are saying we are in a good footing. So our next game with Uruguay, which is on Friday, um, we are hoping that we score Uruguay and then that makes us qualify uh, to the next stage of the competition. Uh, Uruguay, you know, we we have a history with Uruguay in 2010. They spoiled our chances of qualifying to the um, next stage of the competition, the quarterfinals. Suarez is one person that people are looking to take a revenge on uh, come Friday. So we are just keeping our hopes a bit high, uh, hoping to beat Uruguay, because so far we've seen that the team 
has done really well. Our first match with Portugal, it was really a tough game. But then the Ghanaian side really proved themselves worthy. And then even though they lost, a lot of people have been saying that the team did very well. And now topping up with what's happened today uh, against South Korea, there is a lot of high expectation that against Uruguay, we should get a win and then qualify to the next stage of the competition. Oh, there it is. Well, uh, we hope to join you for that excitement. Thank you very much, Nabil Ahmed, uh, who uh, joins us out of Ghana. Yeah, how good to... I love that. Doesn't it just sound so familiar? Viewing place, people trying to sneak out of work to go, but you can't, so there's uh, <laughs> plenty going on. Uh, but what we like to do is we have... Uh, Barry, unfortunately, doesn't get to sit in a large viewing room. It's it's just Barry uh, creating his own atmosphere. Marina. The overnight <laughs> Our overnight football reporter, Barry Guy, with us, how are you? Yeah, good. Join the football. Yes, I, I like nice the sound of him. Yeah, I like the sound of that joy there that's going on. So update us, sir. What's been happening? Uh, yeah, so uh, we had that result, which was uh, great for Ghana, and they're as uh, your gentleman just mentioned, they're now in a good position. Three points them in Portugal, uh, Uruguay, and South Korea have uh, one each. Uh, big, you know, so what they did probably a point would be enough to get through there so uh, good uh, luck to them Cameroon if we're talking African teams they drew 3-3 with uh, Serbia they came back from a couple of goals down there that's their first points each but um, Cameroon I think are going to struggle a little bit to get out of that group because Brazil are playing Switzerland in the top two teams in that group and a draw would probably suffice for both of those uh, and the winner between Brazil and Switzerland would definitely go through. So Cameroon and, and Serbia may struggle a little bit there. Um, and so later today, uh, it's uh, Portugal against Uruguay, as just been discussed as well. So whoever wins, uh, well, if Portugal win that, they're definitely through. Uruguay probably need a win to, uh, you know, stay alive also. So uh, very impressive. I, I was actually just looking through some of the uh, stats and uh, the African teams, I think. There's only f- three or four teams that are mathematically out of it now that can't get through to the last 16, which 10 or 12 days into the uh, competition is, is pretty good. just shows yeah. how close some of the groups are. Uh, Tunisia is, uh, I think, one of those uh, teams that's uh, out. Qatar, I think, is another. So um, African teams doing pretty well uh, there. But um, this game that's on at the moment, Brazil-Switzerland, end-to-end sort of stuff. The Brazil playing without a couple of their key players, including Neymar, who that, has that ankle injury. Uh, so, as I say, you know, that um, it's good. I, you know, I just uh, I just love it. In a way, it's because New Zealand isn't playing. You sit back and you just enjoy yeah. the whole thing. And, you know. And um, it's interesting. I, I always find it interesting uh, what are the overseas teams that people go for. You know, they go, yeah. oh, I'll jump on board with this one as well. I think Brazil's always popular. I think England and... I Holland like the Brazil. Actually, I was talking the other Brazil. day in the office. Just um, got cool I names. like the Brazil uniform. Yeah, too. You know the color and that. That's probably my favorite. Uh, yeah, color of the. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like picking horses, isn't it? Yeah, that one like, looks good. I like I'll, that one. I'll pick that one. Also, uh, we've got some good games coming up in the next couple of days. Iran play the USA tomorrow. Wales play England. Uh, Wales are out. Um, England can confirm their place, and also that group that Australia's in. Australia played Denmark. More or less, the winner of that will go through mm. as well. So, uh, and uh, France are through, but they've, you know, they're going to rest a few players also. So, yeah, it's exciting every day it coming is. in just to just to see that. So, um, excellent. Looking forward to Thank it. Thank you very much. Softballers lost last night. Unfortunately. Oh yeah, so it was Argentina, so, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And Lydia Coe's back number one in the world. So we'll be talking about that this morning. Right.
Cool. Thank you very much, uh, Barry Guy, uh, who's uh, yeah, monitoring all of the sport that's happening. Well, as part of a new package to help businesses combat pr- crime, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern yesterday announced that shop owners can get a $4,000 subsidy to install fog cannons in their shops. So what is a fog cannon and how do they work? The, we asked Andre Weibel from Fog Cannons NZ. Basically, the machines are a heater block in it, um, some liquid fog fluid, which is, in essence, a formula out of glycol and water and some additives to make it disperse into very, very fine mist. Your alarm system or panic button or anyone that can trigger it remotely, making the pump go, which pumps the fluid through the hot part. And when the room temperature type fluid hits the uh, three, 400 degrees hot center of the heater, it will kind of like a non-violent explosion disperse into a very, very fine mist. It's so fine that it doesn't actually condense onto any surfaces, etc. So it doesn't leave any residue. It doesn't feel wet or anything. Some people think that it leaves some sort of dust or something like that. That's not true. It doesn't leave anything behind. All you have to do is, once it's done its job, um, open the front door, back door type situation and uh, let it uh, draw out. It's harmless to humans, pets, food, anything. But the liquid itself is a food grade type glycol, so there's no poison in it or anything. Andre says it generally costs between four and $6,000 to get a fog cannon installed, depending on how big the premises is. Uh, most cannons can release between four and ten shots before they need to be refilled by a technician. There are various types of fog cannons available in terms of output. Some can fill a warehouse, other the small ones are good enough for an office. The main idea is to take away their sight. So um, if a robber comes in, all they have in mind is get what they want. Okay? And even if they have to bash somebody or, or worse, but we imagine they come in and scream what they want, uh, and then all of a sudden they can't see a thing. So they don't want to get sucked in, so they run out and that's it. But Andre says it could be some time before fog cannon installers will be able to make it to every business who takes up the government's offer of subsidised fog cannons. I mean, to put it this way, the last large order that we had with the New Zealand police over the last, was it two or three years, was a thousand units over all that time. So if you ask me now, how long does it, does it take to install a thousand units? Probably at the best of time, six to 12 months. That's Andre Weibel from Fog Cannons NZ. It's 19 to 6 here at First Up on RNZ National with me, Nathan Rarere. Between now and the end of the programme, uh, many, many things on the recent murder of the dairy uh, worker. The professionals of RNZ are the Morning Report crew. Corin Dan is uh, sailing the ship this morning. Kia ora, how are you? Uh, very well, thank you, uh, Nathan. Yourself? I'm good. Tell me what's happening. Uh, we'll have a pretty busy show focusing on crime, as is uh, the issue of the moment. Uh, the Police Commissioner, Andrew Costa, is on the show, so that will be pretty interesting. There has been a suggestion uh, that the police are due to announce a review of the police pursuits policy, uh, but we'll, we'll get more on that as well as his uh, thoughts on the current uh, issues around uh, crime and uh, obviously ram raids and those types of things. Now, we'll also talk to Nationals 
uh, crime uh, spokesperson, law and order spokesperson, uh, police spokesperson, I should say, Mark Mitchell. Uh, we're going to talk football. A couple of uh, interesting Frenchmen who have cycled about thousands of kilometres uh, to Doha to watch the football. Uh, and we'll touch too on the retirement age with the retirement commissioner uh, releasing uh, her latest uh, well three yearly report into what we need to do around retirement savings and whether or not we should be uh, hiking the age or not. Not right. seems to be her view. Not. There we go. Thank mm. you very much, Corin Dan. Well, the government has unveiled a new package to support businesses in the wake of the death of Sandringham shopkeeper Janik Patel. Uh, it includes $4 million to match council spending on crime prevention, expanding the retail crime prevention funds to include aggravated robberies committed in the past year, and providing a $4,000 subsidy for shop owners to install fog cannons, regardless or whether of uh, regardless of whether or not they've been the victim of of crime. It follows a heated protest outside the electorate office of Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern yesterday while dairies around the country closed their doors in solidarity. Our producer Leonard Powell was there. What began as a peaceful protest on New North Road eventually blocked traffic. People chanting for justice and law change. This Wattle Downs business owner, Uday, had some firm thoughts on what should change. Nobody's safe here. Even in the supermarket, the thieves stealing the trolleys. Nobody touching them. Nobody saying anything. It's so easy for them to do the crime. Government has to get hard on crime, make the law changes, bring some different law, scare the thieves, burglars. Have a look in some other countries, Dubai, Singapore. If somebody wants to do the crime, they think twice, thrice. The bad punishment there. If somebody steals something, robbery or something, they chop their finger. So nobody do it. So that's why they got to do something about the crime. Can't be too soft on the crime. Get harder. Police are doing their job. Judges, everything. But the law is very soft. They get away so easy. Shobana Ranchuji runs a dairy in central Auckland. She wants the government to take more action. If they don't know the truth, then being naive, this is the consequences. And do you mind me asking, just to elaborate on what that truth is? The truth is that there's crime. The truth is that the accountability is just not there. Nobody is wanting to lead, or people are saying they want to lead. What does it mean to lead? It means making harder, harder rules. It means not being the nice person all the time. But Police Minister Chris Hipkins says the government is already tough on crime. The penalties, if you look at it, are quite harsh at the moment. So a burglary of a retail business has a, a, has a potential penalty of 10 years in prison. An aggravated robbery has potentially 14 years in prison. So these are already relatively harsh sentences. And meanwhile, our producer Matthew Tunison went to meet Sohini Patel, who was standing outside her Otahuhu shop, the Kofi Superette. She'd stuck a sign up in the shop's closed roller door reading, Jacinda, enough is enough, we want action and we want it now. She explained how she reacted when she heard of Janik Patel's death. No, it could be happened to anyone. Me, my partner, my family, the whanau. It's, it's It takes us to the, like a little shock. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing a little bit from my side, like some people saying that reaction, closing for the little while, it's not going to affect the community. I know I'm doing a little droplet to the ocean, but doesn't matter. If that affects to the parliament, if that 
effects to the bigger people, then I'm doing my bit. I'm doing my bit. And I know dairies don't make huge amounts of money, so closing for a few hours is, is actually quite a big deal, isn't it? It is a quite a big deal for us. It is a quite big deal to us. Um, I'm standing here outside of my shop. My husband, he's in the protest. I'm trying to tell the community, come and support us. Yeah. Because you guys have been the victims of crime, I know. You've just ins recently installed big yes. barriers and stuff. Tell us what, what happened and what you had to do about it. Um, it was uh, e just before the Easter and night time 2.30 when we have the incident happen in our shop we were like terrified it's monitor alarm so we get notifications when we ran to shop by the time everything was shuttered like I don't know it's my little home if I say I've been working here since 15 years so we have so much here I have gone through like half of my life's journey here. So what did they take? They end up taking nothing much. They did pull the till out of my um, register till and gone, but they couldn't open it. And till came back to us through police. They've been caught and they were all youngsters. They were all young kids. I don't know where the um, young generations are going right now yeah and they ran right at the front of the shop front of the shop the door is all cracked the glass pieces are there everything was mess inside the shop they tried to open the cigarette cabinet couldn't open it and they made a whole lot of mess for us thousands of dollars thousands of dollars off exactly thousands of dollars off. and lots of stress after that lots of stress so, so now you've got bollards out front bollards out that is new, that is new. After the incident happened, we've got bullards outside. We've got a um, grill cage inside of the shop to just protect us. In the middle of the afternoon, if my partner's away, I'm by myself working, they just jump off the counter to me. I need to protect myself. Um, and what about, have you, have you received any support from uh, the government for installing fog cannons or these bollards or anything? Um, they did came, but they did came really late. They just approaching me now Who? the government through police they come i think in the last week but i can't wait that long i need to protect myself so we did it by our cost so if they came right now there is no point everything has been done have you got a fog cannon as well fog cannon as well <laughs> so, so everything out of out of our pocket it's already been done Sahini Patel of the Kofi Superette there in Otahuhu. I discussed the government's new fog cannon scheme with National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Look, of course businesses want to feel safe. The government had already made a similar announcement and only eight stores had actually benefited from it. But I think what's really important here is we don't just think about how do we barricade businesses to keep them safe from violent offenders, but actually take that step further and think about how do we make sure we send better deterrence to violent criminals and that we send a message that there will be proper consequences for their crimes. Because if criminals believe they can operate with impunity, then that, that is a fast track to disorder. Yeah, I mean, the, the sentencing, I think, when we spoke to uh, the Sandringham Business uh, Association head, he was hoping for more of this. So you said only eight took it up. Do you, why did only eight take, take up the offer of the fog cannons? 
Well, many more applied, but only eighty have had. Sorry, only eight have had them fully installed, uh, and that's just because there's been a real lag between the government making an announcement several months ago and action on the ground. And of course, that is disappointing for retailers and shop owners. I understand that this new scheme is additional to that, so the proof will be in the delivery what, and whether what, or not that occurs. Sorry, and um, what would National have done differently? Well, we think this message has sent, this government has sent a message that it is soft on crime. You know, one of its key goals on becoming government was to reduce the prison population, and that has occurred. The prison population has reduced by about 30%. And it's clear that sent a message to the judiciary that in applying their discretion on sentencing, uh, there could be a lighter touch. And we think that repeat violent offenders do need to face serious consequences for their crimes. We have taken a closer look at how that could occur in the gang area. We've also been specific about youth offenders, and we think it's important that across the board, the message is if you victimise others, then you will face a serious consequence for that crime. Yeah. I mean, look, about the, the soft on crime thing, 2014, Aaron Kumar stabbed to death at the railside dairy. Those two offenders there convicted of, of manslaughter. National was the government there, where, where Ann Tolley was the police minister. But police stats at that time that we had a look at showed that six months after aggravated robberies were reported, less than 30% of cases had even gone to court and in 65% of the cases no arrests were made. So there hasn't really been much change in 10 years, no matter which government it was. I think, I think both parties have been soft on crime. I think the change is very clear to anyone in the community today. Violent crime is up 21%. There are more than 50% more gang members. Ram raids are up 500%. There's one every 15 hours. We have seen a big crime wave. It is affecting business owners. It is affecting communities. And this government has at several steps chosen to be soft on crime, whether it's that message about the prison population, whether it's voting down our firearms prohibitions bill, whether it's voting down our coward punch bill, voting down drug testing for car users. There have been several instances where the government has chosen not to take an approach of consequences, and we think that message has filtered through into the community. So is there an avenue then for you to be able to say, let's get our courts, I mean, because I mean, this will just help me understand the process, when you're in, when you're in Parliament, can you say, what, we, we want the minimum sentence raised? Is that something that you can do? Or what can you bring up with the courts? Because it's certainly none of you in there that are in the courts sending people to jail. Of course, Parliament sets the law and therefore sets the sentencing guidelines that should be enforced. Historically, of course, we had the three strikes law, which made it very clear that the judiciary needed to provide longer sentences to those repeat offenders. Labor repealed that law. Uh, It is also, I think, worth looking at are the judiciary applying their discretion in such a way that the sentences being put down for some types of crimes aren't actually meeting the community's expectations of what they should be. So ultimately, if we do find that there's too much discretion there, then Parliament can legislate to give the judiciary clearer direction. 
Mm. I'm just thinking, I mean, in the case of the suspects that have been arrested, they're certainly, I um, can't really call it youth crime, they're too old for that. They've, they've come from Australia by the sounds of one of them there, I think. I'm, I'm wondering, with, with things like robberies like this, of robbing a till, of going in and, and, and robbing stores and that, that seems to me people quite desperate here. What can we do there to try and take away the root cause of this, which seems to be a lot of people feeling like they are in poverty? I just think we have to be really careful with that sort of a description because there are a lot of people in New Zealand who don't have enough and who are struggling. Certainly. And they do not choose to perpetrate crime. Mm. They do not get up in the morning and think the way that I'm going to solve my problems is through violent crime, through victimising others, through taking from others. And so we do have to be very clear that we don't tolerate that behaviour and be very clear that people are personally responsible for their actions and hold them accountable for that. Because yes, we can look at root causes of crime, but ultimately the root cause of this crime is that an individual chose to violently stab another person and kill them. They are responsible for that. National Party Deputy Leader Nicola Willis. Uh, uh, Responses in this morning, but I haven't pre-read these, so I hope there's no blue language in it. Uh, Bill says... This is nonsense. Why do we have so many desperate people in, in our community? Answer that, Willis. Uh, another one. Crime rate is down from when National was in. The rate increases she is talking about since COVID. A non- Sarah in Christchurch said, how many of these dairies sold legal cannabis with complete disregard to the harm and crime it was causing in the community and only stopped when it became illegal? I guess they're selling a legal thing. Uh, something that was legal at the time. Um, yes, uh, many thoughts on that this morning. Uh, morning Report is next with Guy on and Corin from all of us here at First Up. Do have yourselves a wonderful day and we'll be back in your ears. Uh, Paul Paul.